Welcome to Second Win, the podcast where we uncover the stories, methods, and modalities of women and men who have found their purpose while walking this earth. Sometimes they found their second win by accident, sometimes by hardship, and sometimes by intent. There is always something to learn from others and really isn't finding our own purpose what we are all looking for. I know I am. And that's why I'm hosting this very podcast. My name is Wendy Charles McGuire. Thank you for listening and let's get to it. All right, second wind. I would love for you to meet Howard Brown. He is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, a speaker, a podcaster, a healthcare advocate, and a consultant at Shining Brightly. He is a community leader, a fundraiser, a volunteer, and Howard has a new book entitled Shining Brightly, which is a memoir of Howard's journey through two diagnoses of stage four cancer. That's like the really bad kind. And how he survived against all odds. And we're going to talk about that. I mean, all odds. Howard is a fighter for harmony and everything that word means on all the levels. And we're going to talk about that too. And second win really is happening all of the time for Howard. And I am so honored to have him on the podcast today and share his story. So welcome, Howard Brown, to Second Wind, the podcast. I'm really glad to be here with you this morning and just thrilled, thrilled to talk to your listeners and audience and, and share a little bit. Well, thank you. And thank you for your time. You're a busy, busy cat. So when we were talking about, you know, that moment, that thing that usually I start the podcast with because of the severity and life-altering cards you were dealt. Every wind you've had <laughs> stacked upon the other. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe we just need to tell your story and do it a little differently today. So, Howard, let's start like maybe with that, you know, that first diagnosis. Sure. So imagine this. It's 1989, August-ish, and I'm driving from Boston, the suburbs of Boston, to Dayton, Ohio. I got promoted at NCR Corporation. And I was a young guy and I was all excited to move out to you know, headquarters. And I'm driving my, I actually have a, a Grand Am. I thought I was hot stuff and a red Grand Am. Oh my gosh. It's so funny you said that. I was just showing my daughter and my son-in-law <laughs> the IROC Z and everything. I'm like, so that car, that was big when I was a senior in high school. But anyway, keep going. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't a, you know, a really big, you know, sports car. But it, for me, it was, it was great because I was, I had hand-me-down cars. I had used cars before that. So, but driving, you know, out and I'm on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, you know, driving, you know, basically across the entire state of Pennsylvania and I'm nearing Pittsburgh and I noticed something on my cheek. It was there, but now I noticed it. And I, so I get out to get gas and I found a pay phone. You know, we didn't have any, you know, any cell phones or internet or computer in 1989. So I called home just to check in, tell them where I was. And I talked to my mom and I said, you know, I have a little something on my cheekbone. I just don't know what it is. It may be a pimple. You know, I don't know. It's just popped up. It's a little thing. And we basically forgot about it. Right. And I, I made it to Dayton the next day. I camped out somewhere at a, at a motel hotel, made it to Dayton. And this was probably on a Sunday. Monday, I started work and I was in the disaster services and the backup division. We're backing up tape that were FedEx to vaults from banks and supermarkets. And I'm selling a, a software called 911, actually, and it was a disaster recovery plan. It was mandates to be electronic. So I'm getting into my job, and this little bump is starting to get bigger. And, you know, my, moms being moms, like, how's that little bump? How's that little bump, right? And we're talking, you know. It was it like a little bump, like like you feel like under the skin, just like yeah, a, on the a, just like an ingrown hair? Yeah, ingrown hair, cyst, you know, pimple, right here at the cheekbone, near the ear, near the left ear. So. She keeps asking me about it. And I didn't even have a phone in my apartment yet. So I'm talking to her when I was at the office, right? And basically she keeps asking about it. And I keep, you know, forgetting about it. I joined, uh, you know, gymnasium. And, you know, I knew a few people in Dayton, not many, but I knew a few people. And then my, my schedule was to travel. I was supposed to go around and speak to, you know, basically banks about a disaster recovery plan, electronic disaster recovery plan, because it was mandated. And so... I start my booking, my travel schedule and things like that. Now, I happen to have a speaking engagement in Boston. So I was going home after about three weeks and that was good. But my mom came out and said, you know, as moms do, she came out to set up my apartment because 
clean sheets are nice. Towels are nice. Dishes are nice. And, you know, I'm a guy. I can live off of paper plates, right? But she's like, no, no, no. You need a bath mat. You need a bath mat. <laughs> yeah, I guess the same towel on the floor doesn't work that well. But anyhow, so she comes out. And I wore glasses at that time. And this is at the time you could walk into an airport and pick someone up at the gate. So I pick my mom up at the gate and my glasses are cockeyed and it's getting bigger and it's purple. And she's like, we got to get that checked out. And we didn't know any doctors. I guess I could have asked folks at, at the office, but they're noticing it. And I kept making excuses. Oh, I got hit playing basketball. I was at the gym. I bumped into something and it didn't bother me. It just started to get bigger. And my mom was was really concerned. And she threatened to take me to the emergency room. I said, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. We're fine. So during the day, she would walk over to the mall, the Dayton mall and go buy stuff and get the apartment set up. And a couple friends came up from Columbus. We had dinner. She was only out for three days, but she accomplished a lot, got me set up, got the phone line installed. You know, all that was great. And then I flew home maybe a week later and I go home. I stay with mom and dad and I got in on like a Friday and Saturday morning, my dad and I usually go play tennis or go to the track and do something athletic, then go get breakfast. You know, that's guy's time, right? Well, he took me to the community hospital in one town over. Without you knowing? Yeah. He, I go, dad, where are we going? And he's like, don't worry about it. I got this. We're going somewhere different. Well, we showed up. He goes, and Howard, how old were you? How old were you when this was happening? 23 and a half. And so he says, he says, we're going to get that thing checked out. You know, your mother's driving me crazy about it. Now that I'm seeing it, I want to know what this is. Okay. We walk in, we wait, we wait some more. We get seen by an emergency room doctor. He looks at it really quickly, touches it and says, it's a cyst. Take some antibiotic called erythromycin and uh, you should be fine. Yeah. He says, you'll be fine. So now Monday comes and I drive into Boston and I have a rental car. And a friend of mine from college comes so I could hand out stuff at the back of the room, business cards and five and a quarter floppy disks, which is the demo of the program I was selling. These are floppy disks, right? For those younger folks don't know, but we actually had disks that we moved from computer to computer to load a program up. So then I do my speech and talking to people afterwards and they want more information. And my, my friend Greg from, uh, from Boston College is handing out stuff. And then we go downstairs to the exhibit area. We walk around the exhibit area. And then we have a little, then there was like a luncheon. We have to luncheon, but I'm not feeling good. I'm really not feeling that great. And so after this is over, it's around four o'clock. I go back to the suburbs, Framingham, about 22 miles away. I tell my parents I'm not feeling good. What does my dad do? Back in the car, back to the emergency room, check it out. And this time the same doctor happened to be working his shift. And he says, give him the bottle of erythromycin. He throws it in the trash can. He goes, that's not it. And they actually take a biopsy. They take a piece of what, what it is because they, they didn't know what it was. And they make me sit in the waiting room and they call me back in for another piece. So someone's giving them some direction. So then I have to go to the airport. I have a flight to Philly or something like that. And I basically left. I went home, got my car. I, I left and, and my parents started to really worry because we didn't know what it was. And it takes pathology a while to get back to you. So they're waiting for that phone call on the landline and I'm off doing my business. And again, it's growing. Now it's the size of a, you know, like a marble or a little bigger, purple, all purple, but I feel fine. So I go to Philadelphia. I'm making excuses. I got hit playing basketball. Everyone's asking me if I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. So I basically go back to Dayton, Ohio. I get there for like a day and I get a call. You need to come back to Boston. Wait, Howard, do you still feel yucky during this time? Or did you kind of bounce back? I feel fine. I'm going to the gym. I'm, it's kind of there and it's getting bigger. So I get called back to Boston. I get to my parents' house and they basically say, we got to go to the emergency room again and meet this doctor. This time there's like a whole bunch of doctors, not just one, the same doctor. There's a whole bunch of doctors. They basically do an exam. They're, they're feeling my neck, under my armpits, my tummy and things like that. And they still don't say what I have. But they did say this, you will have a 2 p.m. appointment at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I advise you go to that appointment. I'm in a, like an Armani suit. So now they've dropped the cancer bomb. They did drop the, the cancer bomb on me, but it didn't hit me. I was like clueless. We still didn't know. So we go to Dana-Farber, which is in downtown Boston. It's a world-renowned cancer research hospital. And you show up there and it's trying it tries to be a happy place. 
right? It tries to be positive. There's candy everywhere. And I walk into the waiting room for adults, but I'm not really, I'm an adult at 23, but I see all old people and older than me. And I walk down the hall to the Jimmy Fund, which is the pediatrics. These are young kids and most of them don't have any hair and they're just playing like kids. And I go hang out there until they come and get me. You know, Mr. Brown, you're, you know, we got to do a bunch of tests, take blood, da, 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 da. Finally, this young Harvard fellow named Eric Rubin comes to get me and we walk back to this office. And this office is an older gentleman named George Canales who invented chemotherapy for lymphomas. And I learned this later. And my parents come back and we're sitting at this big mahogany desk. There's all these awards and plaques and his college degrees. And Dr. Canales is sitting in front of me. I'm, I'm sitting there. My parents are off to the left in chairs to the left. And this Dr. Eric Rubin's off to my right, standing up. And he basically lowers the big bomb and he says, Howard, you have stage four E accelerated T cell, not Hodgkin's lymphoma. And we're going to pound it out with heavy duty chemo. And then I did not hear another word. You know, the Charlie Brown cartoon, blah, 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 blah. And I look up at Eric Rubin. I go, what's he saying? And I just went sort of numb. And I look back, my mom's in tears. My dad's like a statue. And I didn't know what was happening, really. So, you know, they basically said, we're going to start doing some chemo. We got to do some more tests. And then we basically, my parents and I signed some more paperwork and uh, we went home and we had my twin sister who lived a few towns away over for dinner. And we told her and we basically just cried. My dad went out the next day and bought, got, went to the library and got a book on cancer. There was no searching the internet. We went to the library and got a book, a book on cancer and lymphomas. So we didn't know anything. No one in my family had ever had a blood cancer. And so we started the learning process there. But I always characterize myself and my family as a deer in the headlights. We were a total deer in the headlights. And I was probably, I was definitely in denial. I didn't even get to process any anger, but we started to go to the hospital every single day. And I didn't make it back to Dayton, Ohio to, to one, one other visit there. And my dad actually cleaned up my apartment, drove my car back, but I ended up doing more tests all week. And then a week later, I was supposed to start chemotherapy. And I had no idea what that was either. Although I learned it was an injection right into my veins. And I got there the day I was supposed to start, did all this test, waited, waited, waited. You do a lot of waiting, right? So I kind of wait with the Jimmy Fund kids and watch them play. And my mom's getting to know, you know, different people there. We're, we're still very new. And you sit in a waiting room, you're like, what do you have? What do you have? How do you feel? How do you feel? And you try to support each other because it's cancer, I always say, is a team sport, but it affects, it affects everybody. And so then Dr. Rubin comes out and he says, we're not doing chemotherapy today. Your liver function test is not in a safe range. It's too high. I was like, I didn't sleep a wink last night. I said, what do you mean? And he's like, no. He goes, but we're going to do a field trip. And we're going to a cryogenic center at Newton Wellesley down the street, about 10 miles. And I was like, what? You just told me that, you know, I've got a life-threatening diagnosis. And now you're telling me to go to, uh, to the sperm bank? And I didn't even know what that was. He told me what it was. He says, what else are you going to do today? Go do it. And I have to tell you, even today, even today, doctors have a very hard time talking about fertility with their patients. So it's a very good lesson. I'm not sure why he did this or who told him or if it was a vision, but it was great. It has deep meaning later. So I come back the next day and my liver function is fine. And, I, and they start pumping the poison in me and I go home and I get very sick. And I come back, I think it was every other week. And I do some rock'em, sock'em chemo because I'm otherwise healthy. And within two weeks, my hair fell out. I went to my fifth year high school reunion, bald. And basically everyone's whispering, you know, and, and again, as guys would do it, my, you know, the guy's like, he's a poor bastard. He's going to die. Because you heard that cancer diagnosis big C. And I went to my fifth reunion. I wore gloves because I was told my immune system was going to start to be compromised. I had a mask, although my mother kept reminding, my mother came with me, reminding me to put it on. And I stayed for a short time at my fifth year reunion, basically being told that I had a death sentence and I was, wasn't going to live very long. And unfortunately, moving things forward, I got a lot of bad news. I was failing all the chemo cocktails they were throwing at me. And I got, I got one piece of good news in, in late February. They typed my twin sister, who's five minutes older, CJ, Cheryl Brown Jingris, and they typed her for bone marrow transplant. She had a 25% chance of being a match. Now, the way that matches work is they swab your cheek to find out. There's, there's match registries. 
but it's like hitting the lotto. It's a one in like 24, 25,000 chance. There's gift of life. There's be the match. But my twin sister, even though 25% chance, she was a hundred percent match, which is amazing. Now the identical twin, your DNA could be too much alike. Our DNA, because she was female was enough different, but still they typed me for bone marrow transplant and they, they started, you know, more and more chemotherapies. And when you sign documents in 1990 for a bone marrow transplant, they tell you, you can die immediately. They say, when we transplant organs or blood or stem cells into another person's body, the body could immediately reject it. The body could reject it over time. And, but our hope, and you sign this documentation is that it will work, but we won't know because we're eliminating your entire, the week before the transplant, I'm in the hospital and they're blasting me with chemo and I'm doing twice a day, full body irradiation, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon. And we have no idea what the future could hold for that, but it's the old protocol. They've changed things tremendously in, in, in 30 years. So I'm in this isolation room. So I, people have to gown up, wear masks, wear gloves, sterilize before they come in to see me because I don't have an immune system. If you remember the Boy in the Bubble movie with John Travolta, I was immune compromised. I didn't have an immune system and they wanted to keep everything as sterile as possible. I stayed in that room for 34 days while my my twin sister brought, basically was over there getting her, her bone marrow donated and extracted from her hip bones. Now I'm going to show you something and this is in my book as well. I don't know what made me do this. But after they came in with a purple bag, all right, I saved this because this is a lifesaver. This is the exact bag that my sister donated her bone marrow. It was cleansed and put into me at 544 on May 24th. This bag saved my life. Why did I take it? Why did I take it? I have no idea, but I'm really glad I did. It's my potential, but this is who takes their bone marrow bag? Who takes a blood you know, bag? Nobody. I don't know. I think it's pretty cool that you did, though. It's really cool. This is how it comes in a little bag. They put it in me and they just watch and wait. I think they gave me some Demerol. And then you wait, watch and wait to see if it's going to, I mean, they're watching and waiting like with pins and needles because to see if the body's rejecting it, I will go into cardiac arrest or organs will start to fail. It did it. I stayed in there. It's a prison cell. You're in a prison cell waiting for your immune system to grow back. And it did. It started to go back. And then they kicked open the door at day 34 and said, you have a, you know, immune response. You're safe enough to go down to one of the other floors, the recovery floor. They gave me a cake that I couldn't eat. You're under a tremendous amount of restrictions of what you can and cannot eat. You know, like any sushi, anything with bacteria, low salt, you know, you get a lot of restrictions. And then eventually, a few weeks later, I left the hospital and went home. And But I was coming back to the hospital at least two or three times a week to check my blood counts. And also they put me on a clinical trial called interleukin-2 as a grandfather of immunotherapy. So I wore like a butt pack, a fanny pack, and they would change my cartridge every week. I call it getting an oil change. So you get to know the angels on earth, okay, called your infusion nurses. Imagine every day putting poison into someone and having to comfort them and be with them. And, and so I got to know my nurses and my mom and I were there so much. We be, kind of became, you know, the mayors of Dana-Farber, because when you're there a lot, you get to know people and we're very outgoing people. So I want to tell one quick aside story. My mom noticed for a few days in a row, there's no candy and she's a candaholic. She asked Carol, one of the uh, admins there, no candy. She goes, yeah, we're out. We, we rely on donations. Sometimes Carol buys it on her own you know, funds and stuff. My mom called 10 candy companies and they delivered pounds and pounds of candy for, I think, 10 to 15 years, even after I left. Oh my Gosh, I love your mom. That is so cool. She's a force of nature. She gets stuff done. And so we got to know a lot of people there. And then I went through over 120 blood transfusions, mostly reds and platelets, because that's what gets eaten up first. And we ran a blood drive. She did with the NCR. They had over 400 people giving blood in my honor. And I even heard that there's one or two that still give today in my in my honor. It's incredible. Again, Nancy Brown is a force, a force of nature when she wants to get things done. So ro rolling forward, I was in recovery mode and I finished my last of six months on interleukin-2. My natural killer cells are growing. My immune system's growing. I'm 135 pounds and bald. And I told my parents, I'm 24 and a half years old. I said, I, I don't want the winter of Boston. And my friend, David Herman, and I made a trip down there, which I left out and I looked horrible and he was really worried, but he was going through a divorce. He lived near Tampa. I wanted warm weather. 
So two of my high school friends came down and babysat me, basically. And they, Dave was there. He let us stay at his home to play golf and to go to the Super Bowl and to all that sort of stuff. And I was recovering and building myself up. And I went on a, a corporate trip that I missed the year to Mexico, to Acapulco. I went to Hawaii. I had to write a type a letter on a typewriter to the CEO of NCR. They let me come with doctor's notice. And then at that meeting, they said, Howard, you're going to come back to work. I mean, we need doctor's notice, but you're going to come back. And I said, well, I want warmth. I don't want to stay in Boston. And so they offered me uh, Atlanta or LA. And I chose LA. And it was great because I wanted warm weather and sand and sunshine. And I basically moved to Marina del Rey, California, 135 pounds in bulk, not knowing many people at all for a job and to, to rebuild and repair and, you know, put my confidence back, build my mental toughness. I was still a kid, basically, but that was hard because I, I was, I had to figure it out. But we're really resilient people and the body is resilient. And I started working out at a gym and, and getting back to my happy place, the basketball court. I started, you know, learning the job and, and being able to get into a routine of waking up and going to the office and working days and getting my, my act back together. And that takes real hard work, but you have to get up again. So I call it Humpty Dumpty version one, the rebuild. And I was rebuilding myself, but lots of good things came after that. So I'll, I'll take a break there for a second because it's a lot to comprehend. And these are chapters in the book. It's long. So when you were first diagnosed and, you know, they probably... I don't know if they ended up saying, you know, your chances are, did you have one of those conversations? Doctors are very reticent to do that. They don't want to tell you uh, that they can cure you and they don't want to tell you when you're going to die. Only God knows those. We didn't have the, you know, the internet to search Dr. Google, but in these library books that my dad brought home, oh my God, basically a death sentence, you know, anywhere from three to three, three to less than 12 months to live you know, if treatment is not working or, or getting any response. Yeah. In a blood cancer situation, leukemias, lymphomas. Yeah, for sure. I asked my doctors when I interviewed them for the book, what saved my life? And they said, well, you know, the rock'em, sock'em, chemo and radiation eliminated your immune system. But the thing that saved your life was your sister's bone marrow. Yeah. The interleukin-2 helped strengthen your body and get it back, but it's a hundred percent. Her bone marrow saved my life. So without it, you probably would have died. I wouldn't be here talking to you right now. And God bless my mom had twins and dad had twins and there's a reason for it. And my, my sister is, uh, you know, that's, that's hitting the lotto, right? That's miracle number one. It's, it's a big deal. And then I'm piecing my life back together back in LA. And, and I said, good things are happening. Yeah. You become an entrepreneur. Well, I'm still working for NCR at the time, big company, AT&T comes and buys us and they offer early retirement for everyone. So I took it. And that's when I started the entrepreneurial journey. You know, Babson College is in my DNA, number one school for entrepreneurship in the world. And so I went to a startup called Avid Technology in the video editing space. They changed broadcast and Hollywood and filmmaking and television making because they went from analog to digital. It was cool. I really liked it. And we grew the company like crazy. I was traveling. Unfortunately, I'm human. I turned into my workaholic self a little bit, but I was also doing a lot of working out, living a healthy lifestyle and doing volunteerism in the community. So I met my wife through the Jewish Federation of Los Angeles there. Lisa. And uh, there's a chapter called The Love of My Life. And I, it was, uh, we're walking along the beach and I was smitten really, really at first glance, you know? And so things are great. You know, I, I then get it after Avid is going well, I get an offer to move to Silicon Valley. My wife wasn't thrilled because we had moved from like Santa Monica and then Marine Del Rey to Pacific Palisades. We're living in a beautiful area, but she got the hang of Northern California and I was near Sand Hill Road and Silicon Valley is going crazy at that time. You know, there's a lot of beginnings, you know, Google and the search engine movement is starting at that time. Well, I joined a startup that was going to change the way, because I changed the way, you know, video was handled. Liquid audio was in the audio. Unfortunately, it was 1997 and we're in the Sony Walkman and cassette days and the industry wasn't ready for it yet, but we raised a ton of money through an IPO and a secondary. I was employee 13 or 16, VP of sales, traveling again. So my wife sits me down and said, you know what, if we want to have a family together, you know, when we got married, I would think I was 28 and she was 33. And she said, if we want to have a family together, we, you have to be home more. And she was right. And this was starting where the pendulum of Silicon Valley was going from dot-com to dot-bomb, swinging back the other direction in, in very fast, secular fashion. Now, I was fortunate. I got to actually be part of an IPO in a secondary and then another one at, at a company called Navisite, and which was web hosting, now called cloud computing. And 
very quickly you know, got to make some money and buy a nice home in Los Altos. And so we ordered the sperm from Newton, Massachusetts to San Jose. And Lisa grew eggs and they defrosted the sperm. And almost 10 months later, in August of 2001, a miracle, a healthy baby girl, Emily Lauren Brown is born on August 20th, 2001. And so who's luckier than me? Bone marrow from my twin sister saves my life. And out of my own sperm, I actually have a, a beautiful daughter. And things were great. Things were amazing. And then I get a call from my sister and I had started a platform, a nonprofit to connect the Jewish community called Planet Jewish. And it was going well. And I moved back to Michigan where my wife is from and my sister moved. We got the band back together. It's a lot cheaper to live in Michigan. And Wait, why did you move to Michigan? My sister called and she said, I'm moving to Michigan. My wife's from Michigan. And we could have that. We were alone out in, in Northern California. It was great we're near wine country, we're near Monterey, but there's no replacing family. I wanted Emily to not see her cousins and her grandparents once or twice a year, but to all the time. And so my, my Lisa's parents lived here and her, she has a, a half sister and some half brothers and my sister's there and they had kids around the same age. These kids all grew up together. So we moved to Emily age four or five. We moved to Michigan. It's a great place to raise a family. And I could do what I do remotely. I was a little ahead of the remote working pack, but I did. And we started another company called Circle Builder that was basically a private online community or social network for churches, ministries, nonprofits. And things were good. Things were really good. So we moved to Michigan and my health is good. And so it's my 50th birthday and I go for my physical and it's time for a colonoscopy. Now the age is now 45 to get screened. I was 50. If I would have got screened at 45, it would have helped a lot. If I would have got screened at 40, if I was symptomatic, it would have helped a lot because we probably wouldn't be here again because I wouldn't, my men have gotten colorectal cancer. I would have gotten stage one and it was curable, hopefully. So unfortunately, I woke up from my colonoscopy. Lisa has, you know, I'm holding my hand. I, I know the doctor. Dr. Phil, is everything okay? No, I found something. And when I find something, it's usually bad. And it was bad. He goes, oh God. Right. I took a piece of it. That's what he said to you? I marked it. I took a piece of it. Yeah, he said that to me straight. I took a piece of it. I marked it. It's going to go to pathology. Now, it happened to be that the next day was my niece's high school graduation, and I had family out here. We don't have a big family, but my mom and dad, my aunts and uncles were out here, and I had to go to that graduation party and tell my parents that I potentially had cancer again, which was confirmed very quickly the next Monday that I, had, I was staged at stage three colon cancer, and there's colon and rectal. And unfortunately, 10 days later, I had surgery and they removed 13 and a half inches of my colon and lymph nodes. One lymph node was still positive and they fitted me for a chemo port. And then they wanted to start me right away on chemotherapy. And I, I had them wait because we had a trip down to the national championships for soccer. My uh, Emily was a soccer goalie. And I went down there for that and I came back and then I started chemotherapy and I failed chemotherapy because it didn't work because the cancer spread out of my uh, colon. I didn't know people could fail chemo. Well, I call it failing chemo. When chemo doesn't work, chemo failed you. Chemo failed me. That poison didn't work. That cocktail didn't work. And I did that a lot in cancer number one. So it didn't work. They took a, a scan, a CT scan, and they saw that there was cancer cells outside of my colon. That's bad news, not good news. So I had another colon resection and they took 10.1 inches of colon and lymph nodes. And then they wanted me to start a chemo regimen. And I, I said, I needed a break. They gave me a couple of weeks break. And I think my wife, Lisa, or someone found a clinical trial through a doctor at Colorado, an oncologist, and he called my oncologist and they said, yeah, he qualifies. Let's try a trial. And I did a trial in downtown Detroit at the Carmanos Cancer Institute. And it was a stun gun into my arm. And I did two of those. And it had really nothing to do with colon cancer, but it was for cancer patients and really strengthening their DNA and their immune response to overtake the disease. Well, a year later, I'm going down to this soccer championships and I'm not feeling good the week before. I could actually feel tumors on my rib cage and other places. And I knew something was bad. Oh my God, you could feel it. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. You felt a tumor. What does that feel like? Like a little hard marble, a little small, little, you know, little you know, rock or something teeny. Little, little nodules kind of thing. I could feel the nodes and on my rib cage and, and I was in pain, but I didn't want my daughter to ruin her time at the national championships. And Lisa called Dr. Zeckman here in Michigan. Dr. Zeckman says, listen, you're in a lot of pain. I want you to go over to Baylor Hospital. It might be your gallbladder. They might need to remove it. And I said, well, 
I know that, but I'm watching my daughter play. I'll go right after. He's like, you're so stubborn. I said, yep, I'm here to you know, support my daughter and the team and all that. So I did actually, I asked a mom who was a, a past nurse and another mom to drive me to Baylor Hospital, north of Dallas, 45 minutes north of Dallas, brand new facility. I was like the only patient because they don't take emergency room cases. And so they, they basically took care of me and did an ultrasound of my gallbladder. They took a lot of blood work. They did a CAT scan. And I want, and then I basically went back, had lunch and rested. And, you know, we, we had, there was a day off on Friday. They made it to the semifinals and I'm waiting for my results. And that's, we call that scanxiety in the cancer world because you just don't know what's going to show. But I actually expected bad news. I'm trying to keep Emily and the team sh- shielded from this. I did a bad job of it, I'm told. And I get a call Saturday morning. It's like eight in the morning here, five in the morning there because we have an early game. Maybe it was like six in the morning in, in uh, Dallas. And my doctor yells at me and he, he never raises his voice at me. He said, Howard, you've got to get home like now. He goes, things are bad. And I told him I was really just frustrated at Baylor because it, they wouldn't give me my information. And that's the law. You have to give the patients their information. And I kept calling and calling. I said, I'm going to drive over there and you've got to give me my information. And finally, I got a call back from a doctor who says, call your oncologist. We prefer he, he share the news. All day Friday, I'm waiting. I'm frustrated. You know, no news. So Saturday morning, I get the news. Cancer has now spread to your stomach lining, we believe, because those, those kind of, we're not sure. We need more testing. Your liver, your bladder, you are now metastatic stage four, and you should get home. And I said, well, we've got the semifinals. Nothing's going to happen between Monday. So I, I said, I'll be home. I'll get home Sunday night, and then I'll, I'll go down to the cancer hospital downtown Detroit and where the clinical trial is, and then I'll come see you on Tuesday. And they won the championship. It was amazing. But my daughter knew, and the parents knew because they all talk, and they knew. And I came back, and then, you know, that's really a dark thing to be told that your medicine. Wait, I have a really quick question. I have a really quick question because I'm just envisioning, like, if I had that news, and I'm, you know, I've done the soccer, I've done the horse, I've done all the away, the camps, the stuff. And you're there, you're in unfamiliar territory with people that are kind of friends, and you're watching your kid. How did you mentally not just, you know what I mean? Like, how are you able to just keep being there in that setting, knowing that there's a shit storm going on inside of you and get back here, get back here. How did you stay? So part of that stupidity and part of that mental toughness, there was nothing that really could be done if I flew back Saturday night on the red eye or something like that. There's really nothing. And then I would leave my daughter with the parents and I would fly back. There was really nothing that could be done. And I knew that. I was an experienced, you know, Marine on a mission, cancer survivor, and a patient already. So I kind of knew. So I made my own decision. And that's the other thing. You are in control of your own plan. And you do it collaboratively with your oncology team and your doctors and, and your family. And I told Lisa, I'm staying. I want to see if they're going to win. And I want to support Emily and the team and be part of that. And also, it took my mind off from cancer. I knew things were bad. They were bad. How much bad? You know, they were bad. So I flew back that night and I went the morning to Carmanos downtown and they immediately kicked me out of the clinical trial. And they came in and they had a, they, they tested to see if I, you know, the cancer had spread and I could feel it on my, in my stomach. And they were pointing the needle. I go, no, you're not, we're not getting it. I go, put the needle in, put it in this way. And I showed the doctor and he's like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, we're getting cells. We're getting, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. Colon cancer spread. So I already knew that. So then a doctor who won't get named comes in and, and he basically says, you know, this is, this is not great news. And I asked him this question. I said, I'm 53 years old. I'm in otherwise relatively really good shape. I said, what's the prognosis of a stage four metastatic colon cancer patient? And I said, I've already Dr. Googled. I know it's 4% chance of living, you know, you know, eight, eight to 12 months. Yeah. And he says, well, we don't pay attention to those percentages. But then at the same time, I asked him a bottom line. I said, is there a chance I can make it? And he said, rarely. And then he got up and walked out and left me alone. I was alone. It felt like forever. Now that was a a dark moment because I was like, rarely? I had to like, you know, you have to come to grips that that this was really bad. And now I had way different motivations, right? My daughter's a freshman in high school. I'm married for 22 years, right? I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to see her graduate high school. I'm not going to, you know, 
So that was tough. I got more life to live. There's more things I want to see and do. Way more things that I want to do. And, and I'll talk about a life lesson that came out of that in, in a second. But so the next day I go to the, uh, my own oncology team and the physician's assistant, Michelle, who I got very close to and, and Dr. Zachman, who I got close to. And the doctors aren't supposed to get close to you because just this case, you know, loss of life. And in the stage four answer world, there is death. There is death. And it's just a fact. So I go there. My wife's on my left. My twin sister who saved my life is on my right. And we have my mom on FaceTime. And all they came in and said is, I'm sorry. And everybody, including the doctors, just cried. They just cried. We all just cried. And it was emotional. And basically said, well, we're going to go for another Hail Mary. We're going to do salvage chemo on you. And it starts, you know, pretty much uh, in two days. Salvage chemo. Salvage chemo. Hail Mary try to see if we can get what's called regression. Instead of progression of growth of cancer, we're going to see if we can. So I did rock'em sock'em chemo called the Rinatecan. It gives you immense diarrhea and lots of other you know, side effects. And I did four of those every other week, blasting me with chemo. And we did a scan and we got a little tiny piece of good news. So if the cancer doesn't grow and stays the same size, that's good news. That's a victory. But if you can get a little regression, or I call it like George Costanza does in Seinfeld, shrinkage, that's good news. So what you get a reward for that, four more chemos. So at that time, my wife and I started to do a ton of research. She joined Colon Town as a caregiver to get support with other stage four cancer spouses. And I joined as a patient and I went into a specific area to talk to people that had this radical surgery called cytoreduction HIPAC, hot chemo. And I met people there and I talked to them that not only had one or two of the surgeries, one person had three of these surgeries, and they, they did say it's life extending. So I began the interview process to interview doctors all over the place that had done a lot of these surgeries, including my, a doctor here at, at Beaumont Hospital in Michigan. And so I interviewed them and they give you what's called the peritoneal cancer index. They tell you how much cancer burden you have in your pelvis and abdomen. And it's a guess because the scans, the scans do not tell you accurately because the little guys hide in, in, inside the stomach lining. So it's a guess. And I was a six and a low score is a good score. I think originally I was probably a 19, but the, the chemo was working and they made me finish two more chemos. You have to get off one chemo called Avastin because it actually, I had a blood clot previously. I was on blood thinners. You have to make sure everything's a precaution. So they set me up for March 13th and this is called the mother of all surgeries. So my job is to wake up in the ICU holding the morphine button. Everyone else, you know, my family flew in and they're in the waiting room worrying. So about a 13-hour surgery, it can go from 10 to 25 hours, and the doctors have to have a lot of stamina, and they open you up and do what's called a zipper cut from your chest plate down to your pelvic bone, and they basically debone you like a bronzino fish, but they take out live and dead cancer cells, anything they can see on microscopic glasses. Now, can they get everything? They don't know. So then they actually cycle hot chemotherapy agent in you for 90 minutes and they spin you around. They actually take you on the table and they spin you quarter turns like a rotisserie chicken so that the chemo spreads evenly and, and, and their intention is to kill micro cell cancer. Then they sew you back up. I'm just picturing you on a skewer. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. That's it. So it's intense. And then you basically go and recover with 80 staples in your in your gut. And it's not a pretty scar, but you then have to heal and you have to learn how to get your digestive system going. You have to learn how to poop again and you have to get your functions going. Now, my liver didn't get going. They had to put a stent in, but I got out of the hospital in about 10 days. That's pretty quick. That's incredible. I can't even believe that. Yeah, but when you get home, you're you're like a ghost. I mean, I was, again, 135 pounds. I think I might have had a little hair. Who knows? You had to learn how to eat again. You have to learn how to go to the bathroom again. Now, here's the crazy thing. Out of all my surgeries, I did not wake up with what's called an ileostomy or an ostomy bag, a colostomy bag, which is surprising. Many colon and rectal cancer patients have a bag. I did not. I've never had one. And they tell me it's because I had right-sided cancer, not lower cancer towards the rectum. I never had one. I expected one, but I didn't. And I, I would have welcomed one if I needed one, but I didn't. And then I had to rebuild myself again. And it, they did so much cutting there. It took them a year for the scar tissue to heal. So they still didn't know if they got it all. And I was scanning every quarter. And then finally, September of 19, a year and a half after this surgery, I got the most amazing news. No evidence of disease at this time. And 
we cried again because it was great news. And for a cancer patient to get that, you want to then keep getting that news. And again, another miracle. So sister saved my life through a bone marrow transplant, miracle baby through frozen sperm 11 years later. And then again, this hot chemo was starting to work for me, although I knew that there was a substantial two-thirds relapse rate. And you keep scanning. And I'm currently under surveillance. I have a chemo port. And you keep scanning to get those no evidence of disease, to get to a five-year period. Now, five years, they, they call it remission. But I went through so much chemotherapy, so much radiation. We don't know the long-lasting things that happen. We, we learn now, they were just trying to save my life for cancer one, but I had to then start to put the process back of building Humpty Dumpty all over again. But we went right from cancer to COVID these last six years. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Super careful, had to isolate, had to order food to the desktop. And so I did go out a little bit with a mask. So I, I met my friend, David Crum, who was really saying goodbye to me because he, everyone thought I was going to die. And we had a bagel and coffee and it lasted a, a couple hours. And he said, do you want to leave a legacy? He's a publisher. And I said, no. I said, I, I don't think that's you know I, I, something I can do. I never thought about it. He's like, well, I started telling some stories and we wrote on a napkin. You know, it's always, this is a Silicon Valley thing. You write the best ideas are written on a napkin. We wrote on a napkin, 10 chapter titles. And then I said, well, let me go back and tell Lisa. And she laughed. She goes, David wants you to write a book. And she didn't really know David, but she's like, yeah, yeah. Writing's not your strong suit. You know, grammar and punctuation are kind of optional. I write in bullet, bullet points. I called David back and said, David, I have one kind of request. He said, only one. He says, a lot of you know, potential authors have lots of questions and requests. I said, no, just one. I said, I'm not a good, good writer. I said, if we can record all of the most important people and influential people in my life from friends, family, mem- mentors, doctors, my basketball guys and on Zoom and make those transcripts you know, uh, recordable and then and get those and those could be the basis of drafts and then drafts could become chapters and chapters could be a manuscript. If you're open to doing that, I'm open to writing a book. And he said, I got to call you back. <laughs> We've never done that before. So calls me back a few days later and he says, okay, we're going to do it with you, Howard. And it's going to take a year. We're going to be on Zoom a lot and we're going to record all this. And you're going to tell me who we want to invite and we're going to record it. What year is this, Howard? What year is this when you decide? Six months before COVID, October of 19. And, and this is a hybrid publisher. so. I actually chipped in for the making of the book and David became my editor and ghostwriter, but also my wife's a terrific editor and writer. So is my daughter. And it's a team effort writing a book. But what good timing with COVID. I mean, a lot of people were able to get stuff done that they had been putting off. And a lot of books were written during COVID. So uh, it's great. So what became sort of, it became a project to do that. And, And again, it was cathartic in many ways because how many times do you get to walk your life back from, you know, Bobby Bertha Budish, you know, on a, a mud floor house in Lithuania, all the way through, you know, your childhood, all the way through your teenage years, and then your work years, your mentors, doctors, camp counselors, people that really made an impact on my life. I asked them to come on Zoom and shake off the cobwebs in the memory bank and talk. And there were some crazy Zooms too with my high school friends and, you know, know some of these guys since I was five years old. Every time they interrupted everyone else because they were on to cheers and drink beer and it was crazy. That recording was nuts, but we got some good content from there. So it doesn't take one year. It takes three years to get a book done because there's a lot. Three years. Three years. And so when you get a book done, you're and you know this, you're not finished, you're starting. So the 901st step is to actually launch on Amazon and have the book made, made available out after pre-order. And it's doing well. And now you have to promote yourself, build your brand and make people aware that this book is out there. Then you need to get reviews. And I am being told that the book is quite different for a couple of different reasons. One is that I am the MC of these chapters. It's not me telling you every single story and, and talking at you. There's, it's conversational. There's many voices in the chapters and I'm sort of emceeing the, the chapters. So people say that's very different and it makes it really easy to read and turn the pages. The second thing is, is that I got to the full control of my book. There's a chapter on basketball, right? Why is there a chapter on basketball? Because basketball is my happy place. It's my book. There's 62 pictures in the book. Why? Because it's my book. So my 
But publishing house went forward with it. And there's homework in the book. There's life lessons in this book. This is not a cancer book. And I never wanted it to be a cancer book. Okay, there are three chapters on cancer that are gut-wrenching. But this book is a, a life lesson book for resilience and hope to make the world a better place, right? And Shining Brightly has nothing to do with cancer. It had all to do with Babson College. I was introducing the new president, Carrie Healy, and I said, Babson, Shining Brightly to you. And I made up these, these glasses, these monogram glasses, and they were a big hit. So that's the title of the book is that we all can shine brightly. We all can lift ourselves up and lift others up and become a force multiplier for good. So that's the theme of the book. And people need that now coming after COVID and all the junk happening in the world and negative stuff happening. So that that's really the book. Well, I've got a question. I got a question for you. So in all your experiences, and here you are fighting cancer, you're living your life, you're doing the jobs, you're doing all the stuff. Where and how did these lessons appear to you? Because, you know, some people are like, yeah, you know, while I was on the bed and I was by myself, it suddenly occurred to me or I got a download or someone came into my life and introduced me to, you know, how did you, and we know your mother was a mover shaker and a give backer. So you had a little experience with that, but how did you, I mean, your whole book's basically about giving back and serving others. How did that become part of your repertoire? So I have to give credit to mentors. My, my dad was my, you know, the first entrepreneur and a connector. And my mom was this, you know, just amazing volunteer and, and doing work in the Jewish community. We just heard her on the phone all the time, raising funds for Women's American Orp. My wife guided me towards a, a big brother mentorship, but I, I, I want to take it back to being a kid. So the first chapter of my book explains exactly what you asked, but I'm going to expand upon it, is that I'm walking with Bubby Bertha Budish, who lived to 100, and my sister. And, you know, we're the great grandchild, and we're probably five, six years old, maybe seven. And we're walking and she keeps the Sabbath. So we're walking to get some items and I see a quarter and I run up and get it before my sister. And I thought I was going to the penny candy store where candy was really a penny, (laughs) but no, my grandmother looked down at me and said, please hand that quarter to me. He goes, that's not going to buy candy. We get back to her apartment and she has what's called a Sadaka box, which is a piggy bank. And she said, that quarter goes to people in need. And she taught us what the lesson of sadaka, of giving, the justice of giving really means. Now, growing up as a non-Orthodox, but a, a Jewish family, you are taught that lesson. Sadaka is one that most families talk. It's the Yiddish word for a piggy bank is a pushka. And so I learned what a pushka was. I learned the meaning of putting money in a pushka to help others. There's a second thing that we're taught, and it's called chesed. And we're supposed to all live a life of living kindness. Being thy brother's and sister's keeper, and we're supposed to help others. We're supposed to help others and be welcoming to the other and be welcoming to the stranger without getting, you know, really biblical religious. I am a Wexner Heritage Fellow and a Kome, AJC Kome Fellow, my wife and I, but we're not Orthodox. We don't keep the Sabbath, they don't keep kosher, but we care about the Jewish community and the next generation and helping others, including our own, through education and good deeds. And then this, the third piece is something called tikkun olam. And tikkun olam in English means repairing and healing this broken world. Because the world is broken in many pieces and you need to put it back together again. And under the Jewish wedding canopy, you step on a glass and you break it in a napkin. And that shares the shattered world that needs to be put back together. That's the symbolism that you, you are committed as a family unit married to put this world back together. So those are indelible lessons that I learned. Okay. Now, Translated forward after being knocked on my butt twice is well, I came out of cancer the first time and having to learn how to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, but also learning about service, volunteering with Babson College, volunteering in the Jewish community, volunteering as my wife nudged me to become a Jewish big brother, which I'd been for 31 years. Mentorship is leadership. It's beautiful. And I've gotten so much out of it as a giver. But I've taken two because I learned so much about this little 10-year-old guy, Ian, who's now 40 and has a son and is married and we're family. And so the lesson, the major lesson, okay, is not about what you can get out of life. It's what you can give. That is the key sentence of the whole book is what can you give? And I don't just talk the talk. I walk the walk. 
And there's a passage in, in the book. I'm going to read it because it's really important. I don't want to mess it up. There it is. So each of us has our own special light. Everyone is unique and different. We can shine more brightly when we share our light with others, which is true. True resiliency, the kind that is strong enough to overcome trauma and seemingly impossible odds, rests on letting the light of others in. And I needed to learn that, of being accepting of other people's help, okay? Because it gives them a good feeling to help, help me. And then as our light circles the world, we illuminate and celebrate our diversity. And that is shining brightly. So when you look at the cover of the book, Where'd that book go? There it is. My name is there and my energy is channeling through the word shining brightly up through a dove. Some people called it a pigeon or it's a phoenix, but the phoenix is an ugly bird. Even though I am the rising phoenix. The dove stands for peace, love, and hope. And the light bulb is illuminating that. That's the message of this entire book is shining that light because living in a life of darkness is, is negative. It's depressive. It's bad things happen. Good things have happened to me. Three miracles, right? This book is the lesson of using your light for good. And the last chapter, which uh, is amazing because it's called Sharing Hope. And you asked me a question of how did I do that when the S is hitting the fan and my world is collapsing. And you have to have hope because just like sharing a hug or sharing love or sharing a cup of coffee, the world needs to share hope because hope is that fuel. It's the fuel that actually allowed me to keep going. That was my my big energy. So I was hopeful to see my daughter graduate high school. I am now going to see her graduate college. I am hopeful and putting it out there that I'm going to walk her down the aisle at the right time. Now, I think cancer can come back, but I'm planning on putting it in the rear view. I'm three years, no evidence of disease. I got two more years to go, but listen, bad things can happen, but I'm not looking that way. I'm getting rid of the negativity and positivity with action, as my daughter says, is, is what you need to do. And that's positivity with action. Exactly. Yes. I have a question for you. Okay. Were you ever, when you were diagnosed, are you laying in their prison cell, getting like knock them, sock them, chemo, as you put it, and all these things? Did you ever say, why me? Did you ever doubt your faith? Did you ever just say, why do I deserve this? Did you ever have those? I mean, it just seems I would be like that. A lot of people are. I will tell you that I never said, why me? I didn't say, why me? I understood. Listen, I, I thought the question was going to be a little different, but I did get depressed. I was angry, but I never said, why me? But I understood that I was dealt a pretty tough deck of cards the first time. So were you always kind of looking at it like, okay, what am I going to learn from this? No, I had tons of moments where I was crawled up in a ball and puking my guts out that... I didn't share the gory details in the book because everyone, when you make things so depressive, I don't want to add to someone's bad day, but listen, I had a zillion bad days, <laughs> a zillion, you know, uh, feeling nauseous, feeling anxiety, steroid rage. And I took it out of my family, shame on me, but I had many days. I had a blood clot. I, I was in the hospital a ton. I'm getting blood transfusions. There was a tons of terrible days and I mixed the horrible with the awesome. Okay, because there were great days and I met so many amazing people that didn't live or are still living that are just my superheroes. All right. Like my, my mom and my, my wife and my dad, too, caregivers, they put their whole life on hold to see if, you know, just just be with you and take care of you. And there's a lot of superheroes out there. Okay. And there are people fighting just to live and get out of bed each day. Those are the heroes. And so I was much more of a deer in the headlights the first time. Young, young kid, 23, 24. This time I was a mature adult and I didn't hold, it was unfortunate that I got a second major cancer and I had to deal with it. And I am one of the lucky ones that's able to live and, and tell the story and shout from the, the top of the mountain to go get screened, go get your mammogram, go get your prostate check, go get your cardio tech, go get your uh, colonoscopy or, or a cologuard or fit test at home. Go take care of your health because if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. It's so true. What have been some of the biggest lessons you've learned, would you say, that you share? So the biggest lessons I learned is that the world, I learned to accept help. I had prayers from every different religion around the world since I do a ton of interfaith work, and I, I really appreciated that. 
I resisted doing a GoFundMe to pay medical bills. My high school and my uh, college buddies put that together and people contributed and took that pressure off me. So I felt real goodness. I also worked really hard at building myself back up again. And I had a lot of help. My basketball guys let me pay basketball <laughs> on chemotherapy. Probably shouldn't have, but I did. I took so much help. People would drop by protein shakes when I wasn't eating. It just, the goodness came in so many different ways and areas. People sent me books and sent me, you know, videos and any way they could help. I got lots of positive memes and cards. And so you take all that in as positive energy in a really bad time. And now I offer back that an inspiration to show people that when you get knocked on your, I'm going to swear, on your ass, you can get back up again. I'm living proof. You can get back up again, even in the worst of times. Yes, even in the worst of times. So share with us what you're doing and how the book is, is serving and what's happening now for you. Oh, my goodness. I'm really, first of all, I am so grateful. I am blessed and I am lucky. And I, and I am appreciative of that. And I am maximizing this third life uh, as a cat, right? Humpty Dumpty 2.0. So the book is out and that makes you at the starting line. So I am promoting the book on LinkedIn and on Facebook and I'm getting lots of help. My cancer hospital did it. My Babson College is doing PR about it because there's so many stories in the book and, and we're uh, basically sharing those with everybody and it's building a brand. I'm speaking on stages this podcast and others, many others. And I'm speaking on live stages coming up. I'm speaking to medical device companies and pharmaceutical companies and at fundraisers. And it's amazing. And people ask, When's, where's the audiobook? Well, the audiobook will come this spring. I'm going to read my own book and I'm going to book studio time. So that's on the docket. And I have three what are called discussion guides. One is survivorship, one is mentorship, and the other one is interfaith relations. And those are downloads that people can get and they're really questions to make you think. And I always leave the last two questions open for you to fill in the blank. Just like I give homework at some of the chapters, those three are going to become workshops. And those workshops are going to help teach people how to build up that resiliency. Why be a mentor? Why consider, you know, interfaith or getting to know your neighbor and build a healthy community? So th there's a lot of great stuff that's happening. Now, I have a big goal too, right? So maybe. Maybe this book has turned into a film. It could be a Hallmark film. It would be really interesting. Yeah. That I could see that working. Yeah. You see, uh, you know, Keanu or George Clooney. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I put it out there. You got to dream big. So people hearing this, you know, we'll see. Listen, it's, it's all, this is new ground for me. I'm learning, you know, and I'm taking it all in and it's great. And I'm putting my life back together. My daughter's going to graduate. I'm going to be there in December when she graduates. She's going to be a TV producer back in Missoula, Montana and start her life. I'm supportive of that. And my wife and I are empty nesters and, and we're going to keep moving forward. And there is going to be offshoots of the book. So all of those classes are going to become probably not 300 page books with 62 pictures, but shorter 120 page books on survivorship. We can teach lessons out there on mentorship and on interfaith stuff. And I'm excited to do so. And it, again, it's it's building myself back up emotionally, building my mental toughness, building my physicalness. I'm playing basketball three times a week and grateful for every time I get on the court and don't get hurt. And this whole new world of of speaking is is new, but I'm embracing it and learning. And it's great. It's, it's just amazing because I, I got another chance to do good. And that that's what I plan to do. Do you feel like, Howard, that you getting these chances was in order for you to share? Some people feel like, I think I went through this and I believe I went through this so that I could share this lesson with others. I feel that that's my, that's my role here. That's my path. Do you feel that way as well? I do. Other people are more private and they don't tell anybody and that's their choice. That's fine. I'm very public about this. And if one person gets screened after watching you know, this podcast, we've done our job here today. If one person gets screened, at age 45 or has any family history, any, any symptoms. So yes, I'm a man on a mission now. And as I, I think I opened, I said, I'm here to, you know, motivate, educate, and inspire. That's my choice. I choose that this is the way I want to actually, you know, continue. And may God bless me to get, you know, many, many more years to watch my daughter get married and see grandchildren and all that. I don't know what the future holds for any of us. Oh yeah. You want that. That's kind of cool. The grandchildren thing is cool. 
I think that would be a cool thing. So, but I am. So other people are called to do other things. Some people make drastic changes and, uh, you know, they'll move away to Bora Bora and start, you know, start a spa. I don't know. I have my choice. My choice, my choice is to keep promoting living a good life and, um, and helping others. And that's what I choose to do. I love that. Let me ask you this too. If you have like every day, I would imagine there's days that are better than others. Do you have a mantra or something you do every day? I wake up every day and I actually make coffee. Coffee is, I, I happen to be, a, a, a love coffee. So I have different flavors of coffee. I make my own brewed, homebrewed iced coffee. And I do, I actually say how blessed, grateful, and lucky I am. And then I actually repeat a phrase that's in the cancer world. It's from our, we have a man up for cancer group for just men. It's like a man cave for support. And it's the letters KFG, keep effing going. Because in the cancer world and, and from COVID, we were restricted. We just got to keep effing going. Even if it's taking a baby step that day, that's going. Okay, listen, plenty of days to take two steps or five steps backwards. I had many of those. But I just, I just repeat to myself, it's time to KFG. And I was excited. I had my coffee, I had my banana, and I'm talking to you today, Wendy. It's, it's, it's fabulous. This is a great way to start my day. So I'm thrilled about it. I love that. Oh, that's so nice of you. Thank you so much. Gosh, how and where and what should people do to find you, get you for a speaking engagement, where they find your book, all that good stuff? So I always put on the... The shining brightly glasses for this one because because when you're shining so brightly you got to have shades right so we have our shades so I'm very easy to find shiningbrightly.com and in the contact page it says speaker you want to talk about a chapter in the book you want to, you know the downloads it's very easy to contact me there and um, I'm very interactive I'm also pretty available on Facebook and on LinkedIn although my daughter's pushing me for Instagram and TikTok I have to consider that. <laughs> I have my podcast coming out before the year end as well. So I'm findable. And the book is doing great in hard copy and in uh, paperback on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you get your book. And the Kindle is doing great. And um, by year end, it'll be launched on the Apple platform and the Google platform and the Nook and others for the uh, ebook as well. And as I said, the audio book will come sometime uh, in the spring of 2023. So I'm findable. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, come find me. Do you have a name for your podcast yet so people can start looking for it when it comes out? Well, it's not out yet. It'll be syndicated out to about 24 channels. It's called Shining Brightly. People come on my podcast that have got back up again. I want to hear stories about how people overcame and are living a life of goodness. And it's great. I've talked to amazing people on a varied subjects and it's cool. Yeah, I mean, overcoming things in business, overcoming human trafficking, overcoming health concerns overcoming abuse, overcoming alcoholism. I want to know that people stepped in the right direction and they're, and they're trying to overcome things because I've had to do it myself and I'm living proof that you can do it. I will be listening to that. And that's what I love about podcasts in general is that you can take people that live right next door, people that you see on the street every day, have these amazing, everybody has a story. Everybody has these amazing things going on and they don't even know it. Half the time, they don't even know it. So I love that you and, and me, we, we can expose and share these amazing stories because there's always something to learn from somebody else. Always. Absolutely. Everyone has their stories and it's good to learn uh, how to listen and, and take their stories and see how it impacts you and see if you uh, will take any of their guidance and put to action. So absolutely. Is there going to be another book, do you think, besides just a little one? So there, there, there is. So I, I think offshoots of Shining Brightly will be Shining Brightly for survivorship, Shining Brightly for mentorship, and Shining Brightly for interfaith work. But I have a little side project, a little side hustle that I'm, I'm going to bring out. And it's a shared crowd, crowd kind of source book called Cancer Inspiration. And I'm going to ask cancer patients and caregivers to write one page of what they're happening. And in one page, you got to hit it hard. You got to say what went wrong and what's now going right. I want to know how they've been inspired, even if they're under treatment, even if they have a, a, a tough diagnosis. And I'm going to have a picture and a page and I'm going to compile, co compile that starting in the new year. And there'll be a website to automate, automatically take that story in. And then I'll have to edit them and make decisions as to what stories go in the book. That is so great. 
That is a great idea. Oh, I'm glad I asked that question. We didn't talk about that. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, that was a side hustle. I, you know, we, we covered a lot of ground here. Yes, that's the point is to share as much as I can about your story. Howard, thank you so much for your time today. I know people will be inspired what you've been through and what you've learned. The fact that you didn't say why me is incredible. It's incredible testament to you and your faith and what you believe deep in your heart and your soul. And just to share that and to keep getting up. What is it? Keep effing going. I love it. I love it. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. What I, I appreciate you giving me this platform to share uh, so much about me personally and my story. And I, I hope people will take some inspiration and some goodness. from it. They sure will. And until next time, breathe in your second wind. Thank you for listening today. I hope that something you heard made you smile, made you think, and made you feel. If these incredible stories empowered you, awakened you, or left you feeling inspired, make sure to share with a friend and write us a review on iTunes so we can continue to change lives through this content. Make sure you tag us while you're listening on our Facebook group, My Second Wind, or hit the link in the show notes to join the conversation. Until next time, go ahead and breathe in your second wind.